Amen. Thank you so very much. Good morning. So good to be with you as we've gathered together. I worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those joining with us now online, welcome as well. And for those that will be watching in the days to come, I hope you sense the warmth of the love of Jesus Christ in our midst. And what we want to do now is to turn in our Bibles to the passage of Scripture that describes the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. This is the passage that deals with Palm Sunday. So if you'd make your way now to Luke chapter 19, verse 28, we're going to be exploring this down through verse 44 this morning. And here now you find and I find this remarkable event, many ways very familiar to so many, but what I want to do, despite the familiarity of it all, is to allow for this passage of Scripture to just so draw you towards Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Because in Luke 19, verse 28, you find these words. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mouth that is called Olivet, he sent to the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Isn't that like Jesus? And as they were untying the coat, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the coat? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. 
and tear down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that did happen in 70 AD uh, when the Romans came in and conquered uh, Jerusalem. So we're going to be exploring these verses, uh, Luke 19, beginning, you see, in verse 28 and taking it to verse 44. But first we're going to look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to do is to, from the depths of your word, trying to understand how the timeless relates in a way that's timely. How truth relates to trends. What we want to do, Father, is to take the scriptures and relate them to every nuance of our lives. Now, Father, you know the dynamics of our relationships. You know the issues we face. You see the tears on the pillows that nobody else sees. You're there in the morning, you're there in the evening. You're the beginning and the end. You're, as we might put it, the Alpha and the Omega of our lives. So, Father, for those physically present in this facility through the services this morning, for those watching live stream today, days to come, we're praying that if there are those that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that there is going to be a weightiness Holy Spirit's at work, turning that heart to you. For all those, Father, who have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they want to grow in grace. They want to be difference makers. Not isolated from society deeply involved with society, pressing truth into every aspect of life itself. Give them opportunity, Father, to do what our mission has called us to do, multiply disciples for Jesus. So, Father, we continue in our worship now. It's important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. So again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. You're standing with me now, and we've continued our tour until we get to the place where we are at the entrance into Jerusalem, and your tour guide looks at you and says, look, that is the golden gate. That is the place where Jesus would have entered into Jerusalem. You begin to wonder with me what was going on behind the gate, behind the closed doors. Because Jesus has now raised Lazarus from the grave, and there's a buzz out in in the streets of Jerusalem. 
This one is Lord over death. Now there's a certain irony to that because the Pharisees are trying to find a way to seize Jesus and have him put to death. Think about that contradiction. Meanwhile, John describing the scenario leading up to that moment when Jesus would enter through that gate. He would describe it this way. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? They do not come to the feast at all. After all, it was the, uh, the time of Passover. John then puts it this way in his 11th chapter that now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So do they have spies at the gate just waiting for the entry point as Jesus emerged from the crowd? Meanwhile, Jesus was with Lazarus and Martha and Mary And I can just imagine the conversations around that table while these spies are still positioned at this gate. Mary decides to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. Preparations in many ways for that point in which he would uh, be taken down from that cross and placed in that tomb. So he's about now to enter that gate. There it is again. Different angle. You and I are looking at it and we're seizing the moment. We're processing the story. The story that we're now going to unpack and unpack before us. And there are three significant features I want to draw out of this very familiar passage. We want to relate the timeless to the timely. Here it comes. Let's start by this morning, look at verses 28 through 35 together. I want to draw out the first of the three features as that as you and I, as we trace now Christ's, Christ's forward movement to the cross, I want to begin by noting here the sovereign authority that, that Christ exhibits. He's in charge. Crowd's not in charge. He's in charge. His opponents are not in charge. I want you to bear that in mind that whenever life seems out of control, the risen one is in charge. The risen one is in control. And so now we read at this point, uh, as we're pondering this section of Luke chapter 19, that when he had said these things, and Sagari said, what things? And well, he had just launched into a parable, you see. A parable about the kingdom of God, which seems so poignant because he's about then to enter to Jerusalem as the crowds are shouting out something with regard to him being the king. Well, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and you read about that, you see, in, in the 28th verse. But now, but now, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Pause there. Now, when you look at this, and I look at this, Bethphage 
means literally the house of unripe figs. Bethany means the house of Ananias. And whenever you see Beth in a wood in the Newer Testament, for example, it means house, such as Bethlehem, the house of bread. So now, he's about two miles outside of Jerusalem at this point. He's on the suburbs. And he's experiencing rich fellowship. Lazarus, Mary, Martha. They're overwhelmed with that sense that he is Lord over the grave. Raising Lazarus from it. There's a buzz out on the streets about what he has achieved, what he has done. He's delaying a bit. He's prepping his disciples for what comes next. And so, what you find here now is that in this setting, which allows you to be able to get a sense of how this relates to, say, the Mount of Olives, in verse 30, you find Jesus at this moment making this statement, go. He wants them to go into the village in front of you. And where on entering, you'll find a coat tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. At this moment, what I want you to see is that he is Lord over the events. Lord over the circumstances. He is Lord over your events, Lord over your circumstances. How does he know that there's a coat there? How does he know where the coat is? How does he know that that coat is tied and is meant to be untied? How does he know that that coat has not yet been ridden? What we've done at this moment is to draw out the sovereign awareness, the sovereign knowledge of this one you and I know as Jesus Christ Savior, Jesus Christ Lord. Sovereign over circumstances. Lazarus would nod his head, sovereign over death. Meanwhile, the Pharisees are plotting behind that golden gate. They want to be sovereign over Jesus' life and have him put to death. Do you see the ironies? Do you see the tensions in this story as they begin to unfold? My word, he's even sovereign over in the whole matter of knowing. He knows where the coat is. He knows the coat is tied. He knows the coat has not yet been written. All these things come to bear. And you're reflecting upon this. He's issuing a simple command. Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a coat tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Now the command. Untie it. Bring it here. There to follow the command. During the Civil War, Jeb Stuart, when writing his letters to Robert E. Lee, would sign his correspondence like this. Yours to count on. Now what's fascinating at this point is that 
God is sovereignly choosing to make these people, two disciples, responsible for filling promises of the Old Testament of bringing this cult to Jesus. Fascinating. You've got sovereign authority here, but also scriptural awareness here. Back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 11, I remember taking the congregation through Genesis. It took about two years. By the way, I remember that time where a soldier, he had gone off overseas, came back. He said, all I had to do is flip a few pages over and you were still in Genesis. Well, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 11, binding his foe to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes, you see. So now they're making their way, they're making their way toward Jerusalem, and we need to once again get a picture, get our bearings, get a scene before us of what this is looking like to them, to you, to me. So there now you have the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus Christ eventually is going to return. Why, back in Zechariah, you and I are told that very thing back in Zechariah chapter 14. You're linking together in many ways the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in this rich, rich passage that deals with, with Christ's return and pertains, in fact, to the Mount of Olives, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a, a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And those that know topography well know that there already is something there that would create such a fissure, topologically speaking, in that very setting. But now, you're looking at this and you're pondering that. And Will they obey? Well, you're up to, verse, you're up to the next verse at this point. You're up to verse 31. And in verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untie it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. They're going to have to ponder that. How are we going to respond? So in verse 32, now, what you and I read, so those who went, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told Jesus is sovereign. My word. You know at the time, and we'll explore this next week on Easter Sunday, the women are, are pondering and processing this empty tomb. And here's this angel that declares he's risen, just as he has told you. This is Jesus. This is your sovereign one. He's sovereign over your circumstances, so you don't have to be a controller. Be a manager of events, but don't try to be a controller of people's lives. It doesn't work. It just creates a lot of stress for yourself and for others. 
And so at this moment, what, they are, what they're saying to themselves is, my word, look at this. It's just as he told us. And so you're pondering this now. In verse 33, and as they were untying the coat, its owners said to them, why are you untying the coat? This moment, they've already been equipped by Jesus to be able to provide a response. And this is what God does for you and what God does for me, is that in the events of life, we can remain proactive rather than merely reactive. He's already equipped you to handle the circumstances of life, no matter how difficult they are, when somebody poses questions. Why are you untying the coat? And they said in verse 34, the Lord has need of it. Now notice at this point, they don't even mention the name Jesus. They simply say the Lord has need of it. But you see, the word is already out that Jesus Christ has raised Lazarus from the grave. And that setting was not far removed, you see, from where this conversation is taking place. All they needed to say was the Lord has need of it and good is done. Because he's also sovereign, you see, over that code. Which means then that we don't own, God owns. Whether it be the house you're in, the automobile you drive. God is the owner. You are the manager. And so now, yours to count on. The Lord has need of it. And so in verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. Now what's extraordinary at this point is this, for you and for me, is that this is the fulfilling of a promise that was made in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 5th century B.C. prophet, Zechariah penned these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Five centuries before. That's your God. Utterly sovereign over the events of life. And as I ponder that passage from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, righteous, which means his nature, his character, sets the norms for what is lawful, just. He's having salvation. We have people in this congregation who know a bit of Hebrew. And the word salvation is either a passive or reflexive one. If passive, then the Messiah will be saved, that is, saved from the power of death. Reflexive. It means then that he's your savior. Both could be intended here. Gentle, riding on a donkey. Now what fascinates you, fascinates me is this is that when Jesus comes the first time into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry, he's riding on a coat full of a donkey. When he returns the second time, he returns, according to Revelation chapter 19, on a horse, white horse. 
The first go-around, you see, the governmental leaders of that time period, including kings, would ride on donkeys, declaring, in essence, symbolizing that they're coming in peace. But when Christ returns the second time, Revelation 19 says he's coming on the white horse. That is military symbolism at that point of a conquering military general. You capture now how the Bible is depicting the way in which Jesus Christ enters into into the spheres of life. The impact that this is having. And he's writing among the people on this coat. Chuck Colson describes a time in his book Kingdoms and Conflict of of, uh, what he says was a rather brisk December night standing with the president in the Oval Office, West Wing, White House. Mr. Nixon was musing about what people look for in leaders. He slowed a moment. Mr. Coulson says, looking to the distance across the South Lawn and said, the people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck? And Coulson said, I agreed. Mr. Nixon went on. I mean, someone like a Charles de Gaulle, leader of France, there's a certain aloofness about him, a power that that's exuded by great people that people feel and want to follow. And here's Jesus, born in a manger, making his way to the cross, mingling with the crowd. Sovereign authority that Christ exhibits. And what you find here then is that this was a promise that was established. Zechariah 9.9, 5th century B.C. A promise, not a prediction. How's your college basketball brackets? What did your predictions look like? Christians love sports, you know, it's somewhere in the Bible. And I tried, I I give my best, but no way on the face of the earth did I have Oral Roberts in the Sweet 16. I want you to know that right now. How they got there, God is sovereign. He knows. But what I've done is to realize is that this is more than a prediction that Zechariah had offered. This is a promise that God had established. In a culture that's filled with predictions, We've got as a God who is demonstrating sovereignty through the fulfillment of promise. And as you and I, as we trace Christ's forward movement to the cross, you begin by noting, first of all, the sovereign authority that's found here. It's found here. That Christ exhibits. But then next... I want you to see, second of all, the divided responses that Christ elicits. You're up now to verse 36. And verse 36, he rode along, and they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, and 
Those that have been there, you can almost picture this now at this point. It's a powerful sense of imagery as he is making his way down the way. Now the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God. And it's with a loud voice for all the works that they had seen. Now this is primarily the Galilean crowd. And Jesus' headquarters had been in Capernaum. That was the northern sector. And what is it about north versus south? Whether it be northern Korea, southern South Korea. Whether it be northern Ireland, the rest of Ireland. Whether it be the civil war, the north and the south. And here now in Israel, what you need to understand even then was that there was a cultural divide between the northerners and the southerners. And the southerners, in particular in Jerusalem, the Judeans, that is where the religious authorities were housed, where they were found. That is where Jerusalem is positioned. He is making his way then to the point where what we will see is a clash of authority. Who's in charge here anyways? They're trying to have authority over Christ's life by having him put to death. Jesus has authority over death by raising Lazarus from the grave. And now as you and I inch through this week, what I want you to see here is the tension of life and death, death and life. Who's in charge? Who's in control? And now who's positioned at that, that gate anyways, waiting for Jesus Christ to arrive on the scene? And meanwhile, here's the crowd. A loud voice. And now it's probably an echo chamber there in Jerusalem. It's the crowd and the swelling of the voices are seizing the tension, the imagination of the people. They're proclaiming all the mighty works that they had done. They're, they're discipling. This is full spectrum discipleship. Right out there on the streets giving praise to God. But in verse 38, here's what they're proclaiming. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The king. Cecil B. DeMille once told Billy Graham that his picture, The King of Kings, that was made during the silent movie era, had been seen by an estimated 800 million people by that point. Mr. Graham says, I asked him why he did not reproduce the King of Kings with sound and color. And he replied, I will never be able to do it. Because if I gave Jesus a southern accent, the northerners would not think of him as their Christ. If I gave him a foreign accent, the Americans and the British would not think of him as their Christ. And then looking at Mr. Graham, he said, as it is, Jesus is for all the nations. Each and every one needs to accept him as their Christ. There's a proclamation out on the streets. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, but you know your psalms. You've spent time in your psalms. You're encouraged by them, even in the late night hours, as you're reflecting on your day. In Psalm 118, there is this messianic promise that is made, not merely a prediction that is given. You know your brackets. And God is sovereign over the brackets of life. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a messianic promise. And now you've got people on the streets that might not even know that they are reciting the psalm, offering this as a word of praise to Jesus, giving glory to him for what he has done and anticipating what he will do. But here's part of the challenge. We've got an over-politicized crowd on our hands. In other words, what they want to do is to bring too much of the second coming into the first coming. In other words, they seem to be blinded to that he is riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They ought be, he ought to be riding on a, a white horse so that politically speaking, he can now overthrow Rome and Israel will then be able to experience the freedoms that they long to experience. And they fail to understand that there is a second coming, not just a first coming. Blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And we allude to this now and then, don't we? When Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth, you would have thought perhaps Pilate would have breathed a sigh of relief. Maybe he should have reconsidered. Because which is more threatening to a ruler? An external foe with might, but visible armies? Or an eternal king who rules the very souls and hearts of men and women? Tie together first coming with second coming. And don't overreach and bring too much of the second into the first. And don't postpone the first and make it all into the second. Maybe the best analogy is what we sometimes use. comes out of World War II. Most significant event in Europe during World War II was D-Day on June 6, 1944. That attack guaranteed the eventual destruction of the Axis powers in Europe. But though the war continued, the outcome was determined. Yet it wasn't until May 8th, 1945, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, that the results of the forces set in motion 11 months earlier were then realized. And that's how you can view the two-stage process of God's kingdom strategy. First coming, sends his son Jesus to die on the cross, save us from our sins, he comes in on the coat, full of a donkey. The second coming, he comes in on the white horse. It's when he returns, he asserts rule over the entire universe. You pull all this together now. They're getting stressed out, you know, 
behind that gate, behind that gate in Jerusalem, Pharisees are turning to one another, what do you think? Maybe he won't come to the feast at all. Pharisees had given orders, John tells us, that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know and that they might arrest him. It's Passover time, you know. Passover. Ah, this week. For the fourth time in two years, Israel went again to the polls to vote. Four elections in two years, and you thought November was challenging around here. Four elections in two years, and they're still in some form of political stalemate as coalitions are being put together. Leave it to Israel. And once you have it, this is also the week of Passover. And now slowly they're lifting their masks. About 50% plus of Israel now has been vaccinated, according to medical authorities coming out of the uh, sources in Israel. People are now returning to the streets and restaurants and so on. But Seder's at hand. And they can't wait. And now they're in the midst of it all. Again, families are gathering together and there are social events happening. And Jesus is on his way, you see. It's Passover time. And what they don't realize is that the one that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here comes the Lamb of God. And while within the city limits you've got the priests who are overseeing the sacrifices of the lambs. It's Passover reenacting the stories of the time in Egypt when God's wrath passed over households because the blood of the lamb was applied to the door of the family's unit. And as the stories are being told about the lamb, the sacrificial lamb in the times of Egypt, here comes the ultimate lamb into Israel, and they're plotting, and they're going to put to death the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And God in his sovereignty now is even using the Pharisaic strategies to achieve his purpose of having Jesus Christ die for our sins. He's even using the opposition. Isn't this extraordinary? What I'm trying to say here in your second feature is that you are dealing here with authority, sovereign authority, even in the midst of divided responses because here you and I have it in Luke chapter 19, in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What's that great Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus thinking at this point? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God as they're proclaiming on the streets this king arriving. You're capturing the moment. It says, grip your spirit. 
Does it allow you now to begin to process the significance of this event? Let's get our bearings. Let's look at a map. There's Bethphage. And from Bethphage, Jesus would make his way. Disciples are, are pondering the, the whole movements of Jesus Christ. And you and I know the ironies as he makes his way uh, nearby that Mount of Olives, you see, first coming, second coming, and so forth. Ponder the ascension described in the book of Acts and the return described in Zechariah of chapter 14 onwards, you see, into Jerusalem. And while we're at it, since we're in, in Israel at this point, take a look at the path that would have been used. This is the path that Jesus would take from the Mount of Olives to the Mount, the Temple Mount on what we call Palm Sunday. It's known today as the Triumphal Entry Road. When you go to Israel, gaze at it. Open up Luke 19. Ponder the features of the story. Unpack them. Relate them. Because it's the third and final feature I want to draw out for us this morning. It's this. Watch you thirdly note with me now the prophetic lament that Christ expresses. Quick review. The sovereign authority Christ exhibits, 28 through 35. Second of all, the divided responses, polar opposites, isn't that the way it works with Jesus? That Christ elicits in 36 through 40. But now the prophetic lament Christ expresses in 41 through 44. And what I want to do with you, and if you do this with me, you see where they were crying out on the streets, peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Take that word peace and drop it down to what comes next. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, literally Jerusalem, city of peace. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And true peace comes through relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Alluded to some conversations that Mr. Nixon had. Here's another with then King Faisal. Where the king said to Mr. Nixon, there will never be a real and lasting peace in the Middle East unless, number one, Jerusalem is liberated and returned to Arab sovereignty. Number two, unless liberation of the all-occupied Arab territories is achieved. And number three, unless the Arab peoples of Palestine regain their rights to return to their homes and be given the right of self-determination. Lack of peace in the city of peace. You know, Jerusalem had been under Gentile rule ever since the time of Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century B.C. And even after the modern state of Israel was proclaimed, Jerusalem remained largely in Arab hands. Israel only had a portion of the holy city, temple area, the Wailing Wall, that time Jordanian territory, but then it happened. Check it out sometime this afternoon, Google it or whatever. It's the Six-Day War in 1967. 
Jerusalem was captured by Israeli troops. Capital city came into Jewish control. Get this. This was the first time since 597 BC that Jerusalem was under Jewish jurisdiction. So what we're doing here. We're tying prophetic, the historic, the contemporary, pulling it all together on this, on this Palm Sunday, processing. And here is now Jesus. Oh, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you. Your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side, which is what the Romans did. Tear down, you down the ground, to the ground, you and your children within you. He's speaking now to Jerusalem, and they will not leave one stone upon a Another in you, which has happened in 70 A.D., the Roman conquest, because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, when Jesus Christ entered via Bethlehem and then headed off through the Golden Gate into Jerusalem to die for your sins and die for mine. Have you heard of Antonin Sharansky? He was a dissident Soviet Jew. And in the old Soviet Union, he reached a point where he had to kiss his wife goodbye as she left Russia for the freedoms of Israel. And the last words he shared before she left, see you soon in Jerusalem. He was denied freedom fully imprisoned, reunion to be postponed, stripped of his belongings except for one item, a miniature copy of the Psalms. Oh, that's good. What you got to know is that he was brilliant, is brilliant, had a, a degree in mathematics, Furthermore, he was one of the esteemed chess players in all of Russia. And during what amounted to 12 years of imprisonment, he said that he kept his sanity by, by focusing his attention upon, in his mind, a chess match. He played against himself how to protect the king. See where I'm going? He did have the opportunity to read in his miniature psalms. And in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not merely prediction, but the promise in form of a question. But with the death of Christ promised in the psalms, likewise resurrection of the Messiah found in the psalms, we're in Psalm 16, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. 
And finally, 12 years after parting with his wife, he was offered freedom. In February of 1986, the world watched as Sharansky was allowed to walk away from Russian guards towards what would be his freedom in Jerusalem. But at the final moment, the guards again tried to confiscate the book of the Psalms. where Sharansky had paid particular attention to the emphasis upon the king theme found in the Psalms. And Sharansky threw himself, A.P. Press tells us, face down in the snow, refused to walk on to freedom without it. These were the words that kept him alive during imprisonment. He would not go to freedom without them. For you see, even learning an awful lot about the king. And there we have it. Out on the streets, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. Now what you and I have the opportunity to do is to allow ourselves to walk that road in the coming days. Metaphorically speaking, make our way into the experiences that were, on, that were explained with regard to what happened on that Monday, Thursday, what took place on that Good Friday. And from commemoration Thursday night, it will lead to celebration on Easter Sunday morning. Invite someone. And through it all, stay focused on the King. Let's stand together. If Sharansky can stay focused upon a, the king of his chessboard, we need to stay focused upon the king of our lives. And while there would be a sign placed upon and over and above Jesus Christ in various languages, King of the Jews. What we see you doing, Father, is three days later validating that statement by raising him from the grave. And now we tie together the ride on the colt, the foal of a donkey, to the second ride, the ride on the white horse, and see how the kingdom strategy, which comes in two parts, converges in the one who reigns sovereignly over our lives, Jesus. So we praise you for his death. We praise you for his resurrection. We'll walk this road together in the coming days, bringing honor to the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.